The Daily 202 is supported by the Showtime docuseries, The Circus. Get a different perspective on the 2020 presidential campaign from hosts John Heilman, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon as they go behind the scenes and beyond the headlines of the most important story of our time. Don't miss The Circus, Sundays at 8 p.m., only on Showtime. Good morning from Concord, New Hampshire. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 12th. In today's news, the Justice Department careens into perhaps its biggest crisis since Watergate. Republican senators shrug as President Trump continues to escalate his campaign of retribution against impeachment witnesses. And a scare in San Diego as the CDC allows someone with the coronavirus to leave the hospital. But first, the big idea. Democrats are bracing themselves for a long and divisive slog for the presidential nomination after New Hampshire added new uncertainty to a race that was already scrambled by last week's chaotic caucuses in Iowa. Bernie Sanders won here last night. He has staked his claim as the favored candidate of the party's liberal win, and he's now a credible threat to secure the nomination. But his performance in New Hampshire was hardly overwhelming and far short of what he accomplished here four years ago. Yet, if Sanders is the candidate of the liberal wing, those who are more moderate are still divided in their choice. The existence of that competition and questions about each of the candidates seeking to become the alternative to Sanders heightened the discontent about where this race might be heading. The likely prospect now is that Sanders and several other candidates will divide the vote and delegates for the rest of this month and into March, when more than 60% of the pledged delegates will be chosen. With support among the center-left candidates divided, Sanders could emerge from Super Tuesday with a significant lead in delegates. He would then be in a position to do what few Democrats thought possible before this campaign started, which is win the nomination outright. But it's not going to happen without a major fight. A week ago, Iowa Democrats shook up the race by giving Pete Buttigieg the narrowest of victories in the contest for delegates. That propelled the 38-year-old former mayor into the top ranks of the field. And he continued his once improbable march here by giving Sanders a serious challenge in the Granite State. He finished a not-too-distant second place. Buttigieg will use those results to claim the race is now a two-person contest between him and Bernie. But New Hampshire voters produced a plot twist, lifting Amy Klobuchar, who ran fifth in Iowa, into the competition here with Sanders and Buttigieg. She was a surprisingly strong third. After being written off, Klobuchar has suddenly made herself a factor, though she's still someone with major question marks about her candidacy and what comes next. Democrats got into this position because of the collapse of Joe Biden. Weeks ago, the former vice president was intending to fill the role of Sanders' principal rivals. But the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire rejected Biden in such numbers that for now he's been relegated to also-ran status. His candidacy in a perilous state from which it will be difficult, if not impossible, to recover. Beyond Biden, the New Hampshire results were also a debacle for Elizabeth Warren, who had expected to be in a duel for supremacy with Sanders here. This state's often treated candidates from neighboring states well, but that wasn't the case for the senator from Massachusetts. Both Biden and Warren got less than 10% of the vote, which means they're going to receive zero delegates, despite both spending millions of dollars in countless weeks here. Sanders got 26% of the vote, with almost all the precincts reporting. 
Buttigieg got 24%, and Klobuchar got 20%. All of this could be good news for Mike Bloomberg. The former New York mayor has chosen to skip the first four contests and begin his campaign in the states that vote on March 3rd. But it is good news for Bloomberg only if he can quickly make himself the principal alternative to Sanders. With Buttigieg and now Klobuchar in the mix, that's not going to be easy. Bloomberg has resources Buttigieg and Klobuchar could only dream of. But as a one-time Republican, he's not a natural fit in this Democratic Party. And as a multi-billionaire in a party that now includes many voters who decry the influence of big money in politics, he stands accused of trying to buy the nomination. Sanders has already taken aim at Bloomberg, but the resentment against his candidacy is not limited to those on the left, if private conversations with a number of Democrats are any indication. A year ago, Democrats were celebrating the victories in those 2018 midterm elections. Today, they're panicking about 2020. Trump is seizing on every benefit that incumbency offers and adding to his advantage with an enormous war chest and a fairly skilled re-election operation. The Trump team is on offense like no other campaign in recent memory, savoring what it sees as disarray among Democrats. Half the electorate here in New Hampshire didn't decide who to vote for until the final days, according to our exit polling. The desire to find the one candidate who could assure victory in the fall and the fear of getting that decision wrong left many voters here in near paralysis. In fact, some voters didn't even go to the polls because they were so torn. Biden, who has bet his candidacy on support from African Americans and to some extent Latinos, made clear last night that he hopes for a better finish next week in Nevada, which could then boost his chances going into South Carolina. Warren, after a disappointing third in Iowa and then this very weak result in New Hampshire, has, like Biden, put herself in a deep hole with no obvious comeback opportunities. If she can't win here, where can she win? Nevertheless, the unpredictability of this contest provides little incentive to them or others who have run poorly to quit the race before Super Tuesday. Although that said, entrepreneur Andrew Yang and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett did drop out last night after the polls closed. Nevada and South Carolina offer a dramatically different demographic mix than Iowa or New Hampshire, those states will test Buttigieg and Klobuchar, neither of whom has shown an ability to attract the support of non-white voters. Many strategists in the Democratic Party anticipated a muddled campaign that would drag into the spring, but few expected it would look quite like this. The nightmare scenario for Democrats is what comes after the early states if the delegates remain divided among several candidates. The Democrats face a version of what Republicans went through in 2016, Trump benefited immensely because no single rival could consolidate the anti-Trump vote. Now, as you hear people talk about that, it's important to know that Democratic rules are different. Delegates are allocated proportionally. Republicans allocated many of their delegates in the later states on a winner-take-all basis. That makes it difficult for anyone to gain an insurpassable lead. But even a small one can become insurmountable to those who trail behind. As the votes were being counted late into last night, many prominent Democrats were already fretting the possibility that this contest could go all the way to the party convention in Milwaukee this July, at which time the choice could be whether to ratify the plurality leader and delegates or to hand the nomination to someone who didn't get the most votes and the most delegates. Either choice could rupture this party. For now, it's onward to Nevada. And that's the big idea. Here are three other important headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. 
Number one, all four career prosecutors handling the case against Roger Stone withdrew from the legal proceedings and one quit his job entirely after the Justice Department signaled that it planned to undercut their sentencing recommendation for Trump's longtime friend and confidant. The sudden and dramatic moves came after prosecutors and their superiors argued acrimoniously for days over the appropriate penalty for Stone. It's exposed again what many career Justice Department employees say is a continuing pattern of what has historically been an independent law enforcement institution being bent to Trump's political will. The cascade of controversy began Monday when career prosecutors handling the case recommended that a judge sentence Stone to between seven and nine years in federal prison. Then Trump started tweeting yesterday morning that this was horrible and unfair. He called it a miscarriage of justice. A few hours later, a senior Justice Department official told reporters that Attorney General Bill Barr was shocked by the recommendation and would revise it. The Justice Department leaked word to Fox News first to make sure the president would see that Barr disapproved of what was happening and was going to do something about it. In fact, the four line prosecutors who devoted more than a year to this case found out they were being kneecapped by Barr on Fox News, not from their superiors. One by one, these four highly decorated career prosecutors, two of whom had held key jobs in Bob Mueller's probe, filed notices in court of their intention to leave the case. Their asking to do so is highly unusual and suggests that they could not ethically affix their names to the government's revised position. Jonathan Kravis, one of the prosecutors on the Stone case, wrote in a court filing that he has resigned as an assistant U.S. attorney, leaving the government altogether rather than coping with this. Three others, Aaron Zelensky, Adam Jed, and Michael Miranda, filed notices with the judge saying they couldn't continue on this case. Senior Justice Department officials, these are political appointees, Barr's allies, could not point to another instance of the DOJ headquarters overruling and replacing a sentencing memorandum a day after it was filed. In the Monday filing, the prosecutors argued at length that more time should be added to Stone's sentence because of his extensive criminal conduct. He was convicted for several very serious felonies, and his criminal conduct stretched over more than two years. They also noted that he obstructed the prosecution of the case after he was charged, which is usually a quite aggravating circumstance in sentencing guidelines. But then last night, the Justice Department sent a new filing to the court saying a long prison term for Stone would be overkill, noting that his victim asked for leniency. It's really night and day when you read the two documents, really striking. Almost simultaneously, though, as that was playing out, Trump decided to revoke the nomination to a top Treasury Department post of his former U.S. attorney in the district, Jesse Liu, who supervised the Stone case when it went to trial. Liu who has been a Trump loyalist, a Republican fighter, served more than two years in this politically sensitive post as the top federal prosecutor in the nation's capital. Lou was Trump's nominee. In the job, Lou oversaw late-stage court proceedings for top Trump aides and Mueller defendants, including Trump's 2016 deputy campaign chairman Rick Gates and former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, as well as Stone's November trial and the conviction. However, over the past two weeks, after Lou departed ahead of a confirmation vote to go to the Treasury Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. has changed its sentencing stances in both Flynn and Stone's cases, 
with prosecutors moving from asking for stiffer recommendations to more lenient ones. Emerging accounts of the circumstances surrounding Lou's departure cast those decisions in a new, very alarming light. Trump has been lobbied extensively against Lou by people who don't like her handling of the D.C. office, particularly as it relates to the Mueller probe. One administration official says the decision to withdraw Lou's nomination wasn't made until yesterday afternoon, after this stone fiasco. And several sources familiar say Lou's nomination was opposed vocally, this is going to become significant, by Senate Republican staffer Barbara Ledeen, a conservative apparatchik who's been deeply unhappy about Flynn's prosecution for lying to the FBI. A source said Ledeen had made little headway before the recent storm over Stone's sentencing. Apparently that was the turning point. Treasury officials, for their part, believe Trump himself made the call to withdraw Lou because her confirmation hearing before the Senate Banking Committee was set for tomorrow. And apparently they believe Trump was concerned she'd be asked about this and other cases and what kind of political pressure she felt. Several people said Lou had no role in Stone's sentencing recommendation because she left the office two weeks ago before it was sent to supervisors for approval. Number two. Yesterday afternoon in the Oval Office, Trump also railed against Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. The news out of it was that he said he wants the Department of Defense to, quote, take a look at disciplining Vindman for testifying about the president's conduct toward Ukraine. Trump ousted Vindman from his position on the National Security Council last Friday. He was escorted out of the White House by security. So is his brother, who happens to be a lawyer for the NSC. They've both been reassigned to the Pentagon. Republicans who control the Senate have resigned themselves to the reality that they're unable to check or even influence Trump, even as some GOP strategists are warning that the president's actions threaten the party's Senate majority this fall by complicating the home state politics for a quintet of endangered incumbents who they fear will look like toadies to voters. As Trump escalates the campaign of retribution against his perceived enemies, including Vindman but also others, Republican senators are publicly shrugging. One in particular, Susan Collins, said last week that she believed Trump had learned a, quote, pretty big lesson from being impeached. And she said he would change his behavior going forward. Now, obviously, that was never going to happen. And this week, Collins says she's, quote, concerned about what Trump's doing. She said she contacted the White House to express her displeasure that Trump retaliated against two witnesses. The president also fired U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, a major GOP donor who testified essentially against him. Now we're hearing that Trump plans to ditch yet another official over her role in impeachment. The White House is expected to yank the nomination of Elaine McCusker to be the Pentagon's comptroller and chief financial officer and the latest staffing fallout from this whole imbroglio. McCusker resisted the president's directive to stall more than $250 million in military aid to Ukraine. And her emails protesting the delay of vital assistance to help Ukraine fend off an ongoing Russian invasion were leaked in January. Number three, against this backdrop, (laughs) the CDC acknowledged last night that the patient with the latest confirmed case of coronavirus in the United States initially tested negative for the disease and was briefly allowed to leave a San Diego hospital because of a laboratory error. Frightening. The patient was among the evacuees from China 
who were placed in isolation and underwent testing at the University of California, San Diego Medical Center last week after showing symptoms of the coronavirus. But then an initial round of tests came back negative and the people were returned to a quarantine site at the Marine Corps Air Station in Miramar. Further testing, however, revealed that one of them was infected. A CDC spokeswoman, Kristen Nordland, says blood samples from the three patients were inadvertently omitted from a large test run because they were incorrectly labeled. On Monday, the patient returned to the hospital for treatment because their condition continued to worsen. Going forward, the CDC promises that its own lab staff members will join quarantine field teams to make sure that specimens are correctly labeled. Meanwhile, the coronavirus death toll continues to surge. 97 more people died yesterday. Luckily, while the number of confirmed infections continues to rise, the rate of growth is slowing. Health officials say they've now identified more than 2,000 new cases worldwide just yesterday, bringing the total number of confirmed cases to 44,653. More than 185,000 additional people are under medical observation in mainland China. And 39 more people have tested positive for the coronavirus aboard the cruise ship that's quarantined off the coast of Japan, bringing the total on board to 174. Meanwhile, overnight, American Airlines announced that it will extend its cancellation of flights to China and Hong Kong through April. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, February 12th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.